John chapter 7, verses 1 through 24. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jewish feast of Booth was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he is seeking to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go to the feast, I'm not going to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, that he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keep the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. And Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision. That is not Moses, but from the fathers. You circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? Do not judge by appearance but judge with righteous judgment. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. We ask now that you would be our teacher, that we would sit at your feet and learn from you. We thank you for John 7, and we would ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have for us this morning. And we ask that you would guard us and keep us from error. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If I was to ask you the question, what is John 7 all about? Why is it in here? Why does John include John chapter 7 in his gospel? What is it that he wants us to see? What is it he wants us to understand? What is it that he wants us to comprehend? John 7, we are given a very remarkable and striking picture of unbelief. We are face to face with the greatest tragedy that the world has ever known. Here is the Son of God being rejected by his half-brothers. Here is the Son of God being rejected by the crowd. And here is the Son of God being rejected by the Jews. Now, when John uses the term Jews, 
He is not referring to the general population. He is referring to the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. The Jews who said, you are a Samaritan and have a demon, John 8, 48. It was the Jews who, who had cast out the man born blind from the synagogue in John 9, 22. It was the Jews who took up stones to stone Jesus in John 10, 31. And it was the Jewish officers who bound Christ in John 8, 12. So here's my outline this morning. Verses 1 through 9, we're going to see the unbelief of Jesus' half-brothers. Verses 10 through 13, we're going to see the unbelief of the crowd. And then in 14 to 24, we're going to see the unbelief of the Jews. Here's what I want you to take away. Here's what I want to, uh, for you to bring home with you. I want us to see the tragedy and the danger of unbelief. Subtitle, I want us to see Jesus confronts our unbelief. So that's what I want you to take home this morning from John 7, to see the tragedy and the danger of unbelief and to see Jesus confronts our unbelief. If I was to ask you, what is John's apostle, what's John's um, Gospel of John all about? What is at the center of the Gospel of John? What is at the heart and core and center of John's ministry? What is it that moves John? What is it that John is passionate about? Well, he tells us in John 20, verses 30 and 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Jesus did many miracles, John says. Well, I didn't include them in this book, but I've selected a few. Why did you write this letter? I've written this letter so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John is concerned about one thing. This is his passion. This is the center of his ministry. Do you, do I believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God? That's what this gospel is all about. Eternal life, eternal joy, heaven depends on one thing and one thing only. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Your eternal destiny, my eternal destiny, pivots around one thing and one thing only. Do I believe in Jesus Christ? Now, anyone familiar with the gospel must know that. This is the thing that is emphasized everywhere from the beginning of the New Testament to the end. All the great promises in the New Testament are the result of believing in Jesus Christ. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the greatest promise in all of scripture, everlasting life, eternal life. How do you receive eternal life? Where do you get it? We're told here, how do we get eternal life? By believing in Jesus Christ. And you know, we 
We sit here and Sunday after Sunday, we talk about eternal life and eternal joy. May not mean a lot sitting here in this pew, but you're standing in a cemetery and the wind is blowing and the snow is in your face and you're standing in front of a casket of your brother in Christ. It's going to mean something to you that this world is not all there is. There is such a thing as eternal life. And that is the promise for those who believe in Jesus. And then do you remember John 3, 18? Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And then you remember John 8, 24. Jesus says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. There's only two ways to die. Either die in your sins or you die in Jesus. It's the only options. And do you remember the Philippian jailer? Here's a man who suddenly finds the prison doors are open, and he thought that the prisoners were gone. He takes out a sword and in desperation is ready to kill himself, and the apostle Paul calls out and says to him, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And then the scripture says that he called for light and with fear and trembling, he falls before Paul and Silas and says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. How do we gain heaven? Anybody here want to go to heaven? John 14 Jesus says to the disciples, let not your heart be troubled. I don't want my followers, my disciples to be troubled. I don't want your hearts agitated or upset. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. And I go to prepare a place for you. If it wasn't so, I would have told you. Heaven is gained by believing in Christ. Your eternal destiny, my eternal destiny, Heaven, hell, eternal life, or eternal damnation depends upon one thing. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? And in the same way, the great warnings which are found in the New Testament. He who believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Here's the one thing that is ultimately responsible for a man's condemnation. He that believeth not... What finally condemns the soul for all eternity is a failure or a refusal to believe in Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation tells us there will be certain people who are outside. They don't get in the kingdom of God. Who are these people that don't get in? Well, he gives us a list of these people and their character. He says, the cowardly, the unbelievers, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their portion will be the lake of fire. The unbelievers, those who do not believe the truth about this blessed person, Jesus Christ, will perish. They'll be on the outside. So heaven and hell depends upon one thing. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? That's what's at stake here. That's what John 7 is all about, belief or unbelief. Now, there may be somebody here 
that you've maybe already tuned out and said, oh, he's preaching a basic salvation message, those who believe and those who don't believe. I've already believed, and so I'm good to go, and I can just check on my smartphone now and just kind of catch the pregame for the Super Bowl. Unless you want to check out, let me remind you of one thing. There's only one true saving faith, and that's a persevering faith, an enduring faith. John is concerned not only that you believe in Christ, but you've got the real genuine thing. John chapter 2, John makes a statement. Many believed in Jesus, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them because he knew all men. And then what Pastor Tony just preached on in John chapter 6. Jesus feeds the 5,000, which is probably more like 20,000 when you count women and children. And he feeds these 20,000 people, and this great crowd comes looking for Jesus. And Jesus said, you came looking for me, not because you saw the miracles and they give testimony who I am. You came looking for me because you had your bellies filled. A lot of people want to follow Jesus as long as he meets all of their physical needs. You can follow Jesus for the wrong reason. So there's this great multitude following Jesus. And then there's this discourse on the bread of life. And he says, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no part with me. And then what it says? All this crowd left him, turned and walked away. Starts out with 20,000 people following Jesus. By the time you get to the end of the chapter, he turns to the 12 and say, you guys leaving too? That's where we pick up John 7. So John is concerned not only that you have faith, but you have a genuine faith, a true faith. Do you remember Jesus tells this parable about a sower who sowed seed, and some of the seed fell on the path, and the birds came and ate it, and then some of the seed fell on the rocky soil, and then some of the seed fell on the weeds, and then some fell on the good soil. He says, some of the seed never penetrated the heart. The devil comes and takes it away. But then there's some seed that it falls in the rocky ground, and, and it has a little soil, and so it springs up, but because of the rock, it has no root. And so it withers and dies. And then there's some that falls upon the, the, the wheat or the tares and, and the, the, the weeds choke out the life of it and it perishes. But then the, some of it's going to fall on good soil and it's going to bring forth fruit. There's going to be fruit in their life. There's going to be evidence of repentance. Genuine saving faith has fruit to it. And he warns us about a temporary faith. The only faith that is genuine faith is a faith that endures. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. This genuine faith is a persevering faith that carries you all through life until the day you die. So John is concerned that we have a genuine, true, saving faith. So John has written this letter that you may believe that Christ is the Son of God and that believing you may have life in his name. So this is not a secondary issue. 
This is not peripheral. This is primary. This is front and center. This is the essence of Christianity. Do you believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God or do you not? Now, what do we see here in John 7, verses 1 through 9? The first thing we see is the unbelief of his half-brothers. The unbelief of Jesus' brothers. Verse 1, after this, what's, what's this after? The great multitude that was following him, and then after his discourse, he turns and says, are you guys leaving too? I've only got 12 people following me right now. You guys going to leave too? After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Wow, what a statement. Here's the greatest tragedy the world has ever known. Here is Jesus, the Son of God, the great I am that I am. Before Abraham was, I am. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the bread of life. I'm the living water. Here is God in the flesh, and they want to kill him. Absolute tragedy. Everything that we need in life is found in this blessed person, Jesus Christ, and they want to kill him. He said, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. And that's still the tragedy today, is it not? We have loved ones, friends, who still do not believe in Jesus Christ. They pay no attention to him. They could care less about him and his life. And so here's this greatest tragedy there is, the Son of God, and he's totally rejected. Now let me pick up verses 2 through 5. We're going to look at the unbelief of the brothers. Now the Jewish feast of Booth was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Here we are told, not even his brothers believed in him. Now later, in the book of Acts, chapter 1, his brothers do believe in him. Praise the Lord. But John wants us to understand, right now, at this point in time, his brothers did not believe in him. So there's hope. You can go from unbelief to belief. But he says at this point in time, his brothers did not believe in him. Later, they do believe in him. So this is James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, not Iscariot, recorded in Matthew 13, 55. Those who had been born of the same mother, brought up in the same house, who lived with him day by day, they did not believe in him. This is James, who becomes the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, who eventually writes the letter of 1 James. And ironically, what's it about? True, genuine, saving faith. That's James's theme. You guys want to talk about faith and faith alone? I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, yes, we are saved by faith in Christ alone, but that faith is never alone, as the reformer said. There's substance to it. And that's James's whole argument. So this is James. The half-brother of Jesus, and at this point, John wants us to know he didn't believe. He was an unbeliever. And look at what they say. 
And how do you interpret what they say here? Remember when Dave DeHaan taught that class downstairs, Dig and Discover, and we talked about the tone and how do you interpret the tone? How do you interpret the tone here and the words of the half-brothers? So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. What's the, what's the tone there? Are they saying, Jesus, man, we've got your back. We believe in you. We, we want you to know you need to go up to Jerusalem. You need to show them your power and, and uh, let them see who you are. Is that what's being communicated here? We've got your back. We're behind you. Go to Judea. Show them your power and your glory. No, that's, that's not what they're doing. It's not a positive statement. In fact, John calls it unbelief. You want a picture of unbelief? John says, I'm going to give you a picture of unbelief. It's right here. This is a picture of unbelief. They did not believe in him. That's what John says. So what are they doing? They're criticizing him. They're arguing with him. They're telling him what he ought to do. They're finding fault with him. What are you doing hanging around in Galilee? You need to go up to Jerusalem where all the people is, where the crowds is, so they can believe in you. What are you doing hanging out in Galilee? They're giving instructions to the Son of God and tell the Son of God what he ought to do. Wow. Talk about spiritual blindness and gall to tell the Son of God, you're going about this all wrong. You're doing this whole thing, this whole ministry wrong. You need to leave Galilee. There's nothing in Galilee just a rural area. You need to go to the city, man. Go to Broadway. Show them who you are. They're arguing with him. They're instructing him, giving him advice. Do you see that? This is a picture of unbelief. Do you have any of that in you? Do I have any of that in me? You want to instruct God on how to do things? You ever find yourself giving the Son of God advice, telling him what he ought to do, criticizing him? They're taking a superior attitude here. Hey, what are you doing hanging around Gala? You need to go to Judea, go up to the big city. Show yourself to the world, do something. Guess what? God doesn't dance to our music. Notice they're doing all the talking. They've got it all figured out. They've got all the answers. You're going about this all wrong. You need to do this. Very dangerous when we start giving God advice. I knew a family in Wheaton. They attended the Wheaton Bible Church. Believers, professing believers. Their son came down with leukemia. They battled leukemia with their son day after day, month after month, year after year. Some four years into the leukemia, the father said one day, God, if you don't heal my son, you're not worthy to be served. And his son died, and they left the church. 
I don't know if they've ever come back. I hope they did. I hope they repented and turned back to the Lord. But it's very dangerous when you start telling God what he ought to do. This is unbelief. Belief is the opposite of all of that. Notice they're doing all the talking. They have all the answers. They're voicing their opinions, their ideas, telling the Son of God what he should be doing. Belief is the opposite of that. You know what the first step is in the path to belief? Excuse my expression, to shut up. Stop talking and listen to God. So many people are just arguing and fighting with God and telling him what he ought to be doing. And they might want to just be quiet. Open up the Bible and let God speak to him. Here at Calvary, we believe that the Bible is unique. It stands alone. There's no other book in the Bible and the world like the Bible. It is God's word. And every time we open up the Bible, we're coming in the presence of God. And we are to allow him to speak to us. So maybe we need to just be quiet and let him speak to us and tell us who he is. And I think Christian people in this room will confirm what I've said. The first step is to be quiet, to shut up and let the son of God speak to us. And he will give us understanding of his word. Now look at Jesus's response. How does he respond? How does he confront their unbelief? Jesus said to them, my time is not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go to the feast. I'm not going to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Now, before we look at his response, I want you to notice one thing. Jesus clearly defines for us unbelief and why it is they do not believe in him. Look what he says. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Why? Because I testify about it that his works are evil. That's why people hate Jesus Christ. It's not an intellectual issue. It's a moral issue. He testifies that their works are evil and sinful, and they don't like that. And so he tells us this is the heart of unbelief. I call out your sin and you hate me for it. How does Jesus respond to his brothers? First thing he does is he separates himself from his brothers. Did you notice that? Jesus said to them, my time is not yet come. Your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it. This works are evil. You go to the feast. I'm not going to the feast. My time has not yet fully come. Jesus is separating himself from his disciples. He is saying, guys, we're not on the same page here. We're not, we're not equals here. I'm the son of God. I'm from above. You're from below. You're of the world. I'm not of the world. You belong to the world. That's why the world doesn't uh, hate you, but it hates me because I'm not of the world. He separates himself from his disciples. We're not equals. You're not speaking to equal. I'm the son of God. I've come down from heaven to this earth. 
Remember the words of the preacher in Ecclesiastes? Remember your creator. God is in heaven. We are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. We're not in a position to give God advice, to give him counsel. As Christians, belief is, I trust my sovereign God. He is the creator of the heavens and earth. He reigns over all this world. And I trust him because he's good, he's kind, he's loving, and he's wise in all that he does. So we trust him. So we've seen the unbelief of his brothers. We've seen Jesus' response to his brothers. Now let's look at the unbelief of the crowd. Or like, let me back up on one, one, one more point here. Not only does Jesus separate himself from his brothers, but he also reminds them that I am following God's plan and purpose. You guys can go up to the feast all you want to, but I am on God's plan and purpose, and you guys don't understand God's plan and purpose. If I go up to the feast with you guys and I join this caravan, the Jews are waiting for me and they're going to kill me, and it's not according to God's plan that I would be killed or martyred at the Feast of Tabernacles. So I'm not going up. You guys don't understand God's plan here. Six months from now, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be crucified on the cross, and I'm going to be killed. But that's going to be at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover. So you guys, you got your own plan, but I want you to know I've got a different plan. I'm following God's plan and God's purpose. So Jesus separates himself, and then he reminds them, you guys don't understand the plan of God. I've come into this world to die for the sins of my people that they could be forgiven. You guys are clueless to the plan of God. Now let's look at the unbelief of the crowd. Verses 10 through 13. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also, not publicly, but in private. Now, some people will say, and did Jesus lie? No, in, in the original, it can be translated. Jesus said, I'm not going up yet. I'm not going up with you guys in the caravan. The Jews are waiting for me. I'm not going up yet. And so that's the way it could be translated. But after this, his brothers had gone up to the feast. Then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, the Pharisees, scribes, no one spoke openly of him. Here we see the unbelief of the crowd. Some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. This kind of reminds me of Matthew 16, 13, when Jesus is at Caesarea Philippi. And you remember, he turns to his disciples and he says to them, guys, what are men saying about me? Have you, have you been listening to what men are saying about me? Yeah, we, we kind of picked up on that. Uh, what, are, what are men saying about me? Well, some think that you're John the Baptist. Well, why John the Baptist? Well, you know, John, he preached repentance and he called out sin and he told Herod it wasn't right for him to have his brother's wife and got him killed. And so they see you as like John the Baptist. You, you preach repentance and you call out sin. All right. Well, 
else are they saying about me? Well, some think that you're, uh, you're Elijah. Well, why Elijah? Well, you know, you, you've got power. Like Elijah, I mean, he, he called down fire from heaven and it consumed the altar and they've, they've seen your power. And so some people say you're like Elijah. And then some say that Jeremiah. Why Jeremiah? Well, he was the weeping prophet and somebody said they, they saw you weeping over Jerusalem and you've, you've got a heart and a compassion for God's people. So maybe you're Jeremiah. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and says, and who do you say that I am? And, G and Peter responds, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Peter, you nailed it. You are so smart. You are so brilliant. You figured this all out. I didn't know if it was going to be you or John or James that finally figured this whole thing out. But Peter, you are so smart. No, that's not what he said. He said, Blessed are you, Peter, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven. The only way that we see is the Lord gives us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to receive. Faith is a gift from God. And then last we see the unbelief of the Jews. Verse 14 about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Notice what they said. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went into the temple and he began teaching. The Jews, the ones who were ready to kill him, the Pharisees, the scribes, they marveled at what he said. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he preached through John 7, devoted one message to this one word. They marveled. This is the essence of Christianity. Everything about Jesus is marvelous. He is wonderful. He's amazing. He's astonishing. An angel appears to Mary and says, you're going to conceive and give birth to the Son of God. And she is in awe and wonder, how is this possible? I am a virgin. And then Mary and Joseph goes up to the temple to have Jesus circumcised on the eighth day according to the laws of Moses. And there's a man by the name of Simeon there. And God had promised you're not going to die until you see my salvation. And Mary and Joseph come in. He takes that baby in his arms. And he says, now I can die in peace. I see your salvation. This child has been appointed to be a light to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And it says that Mary and Joseph marveled at what was being said. And then Jesus is 12 years old. He's in the temple. He's been lost for three days. His parents are frantic looking at him, three days looking for him. Paul and I lost James for three minutes at a mall, and we panicked. <laughs> They're looking for Jesus, and he's 12 years old, and he's in the temple. And it says that all who heard him marveled. This 12-year-old boy, his understanding of Scripture, yeah, he wrote it. And then he gets done with the Sermon on the Mount. And what does it say? They marveled at his teaching. Never did a man speak like this man. 
They marveled. Everything about Jesus Christ is marvelous and wonderful and glorious. One day they come to him. They said, um, Jesus, is it lawful to pay our taxes to Caesar? And Jesus says, guys, this is ridiculous. Trying to catch me in a trap like this. You guys got a denarius? Give me a denarius. Whose image is this? Caesar's. Render to Caesar things of Caesar's, to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at his wisdom and understanding. You know, it even says that Pilate marveled at Jesus. Amazed, astonished. Hey, carpenter boy, don't you understand? I have authority to set you free or to crucify you, and you say nothing? You don't suck up to me? You don't butter up to me? You're just silent? Never had a word. Scripture says, Pilate, marvel. This guy's not begging for his life. He's not pleading. He marveled. And so when you read this, you think, man, this is hopeful. The Jews marveled at his teaching. All right, maybe this is a turning point in their life. No, because then you look at their response. They marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? Here's intellectual pride, unbelief. Who is this man? In the original, it's more derogatory. It's like, who is this guy, this fellow, this man? Who's this guy, this carpenter from Nazareth that comes into the, uh, the temple and starts teaching? Who is this guy? Just a carpenter's son. Do you remember what Paul says in Romans 1.16? Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. You think Paul struggled with that? I think he did. That's why he makes mention of it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I am proud of the gospel. I boast in the gospel. But as a Jew, raised as a Jew, I struggle with the gospel message. You ever been tempted to be ashamed of the gospel? Why would we be ashamed of the gospel? Because of the essence of the gospel. We profess that this baby born in Bethlehem, in a stable, in a filthy barn, grows up in Nazareth, the son of a carpenter, blue-collar worker guy, is the son of God. And the world laughs at it and ridicules it. You've got to be kidding me. You really believe that this carpenter from Nazareth is the son of God? Yeah, I do. But there is that temptation, intellectual pride. So I can't swallow this. I mean, you, you Christians, you know, and you got your gospel, and it's an old message, and that was before science, and we're, we're living the, the uh, age of enlightenment and science and knowledge and technology and, and all that, that stuff about miracles and healing and stuff. That, that's for people then in the old days, 1,000 years. They didn't know any better. Intellectual pride. But the real issue is not their intellectual pride. It's their sin. Unbelief is a moral issue. Look at what Jesus says. He now confronts them with their sin. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keep the law. Stepping right on their toes. You Jews like to brag about the law of God. But none of you keep it. 
Thou shalt not murder. And I say unto you, even if you are angry at your brother, you're guilty of murder. The law says thou shalt not commit adultery. And I'm telling you, if you even look upon a woman, you've committed lust with her and adultery in your own heart. He calls them out and says, none of you keep the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marveled. Notice it was the crowd that says, who's trying to kill you? Jesus knows they're trying to kill him, right? Why? Because he knows the hearts of the, the Jews, the Pharisees. And they had to know he's calling them out. He sees, he understands, he knows exactly what they're doing. You're seeking to kill me. And they had to go, whoa, this guy knows what's going on. Yeah, he knows everything about you. You remember in John 2, he sees Nathaniel and he says, I saw you under the tree when you're meditating. Behold, an Israelite in whom there's no gall. I know your heart. Here's a good man. He knows everything about us. And so Jesus calls him out. He says, you have not kept the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answers, you have a demon who seeks to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marveled of it. Moses gave you circumcision, not Moses. You misquoted that. It was really Abraham, but I'll give you a bye on that one. You circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. What's he saying? You give birth to a child, it's a boy, and you've got to circumcise him on the eighth day according to the law of Moses, and you go to the temple to have him circumcised. Oh, 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 it's the Sabbath. It's the Sabbath. We can't, we can't do it. No, law of Moses says you must circumcise the child on the Sabbath day to make him ceremonial clean. And Jesus said, you guys, you'll go ahead and say that's lawful, that's the right thing to do, and I make a man whole, and you're angry at me because I made a man whole on the Sabbath day. You've missed it. He's calling out their sin. How do we move from unbelief to belief? Step number one, when the Lord convicts you of sin. You can play all the intellectual games you want, but when it really comes down to looking in the mirror and saying, who am I? What's really going on in my heart? Why is it that the very things that I don't want to do, I do. The things I hate, I end up doing. There's something wrong with me in my heart. When you go down that path, it leads to salvation. But as long as you want to play games, instead of facing the facts that we are sinful people and our hearts are desperately wicked, you'll never come to saving faith in Christ. Many years ago, we had a Bible conference here. Brother Conrad Merle was preaching. God did a work in a number of people's lives that weekend, including my, my own. Julie Callio was here. Matt Callio's mom. She was a student at Judson University. She was doing her internship here at Calvary under Bill Lutz. And she sat right there in the, the choir loft next to Joyce Wills. And Conrad was preaching on the heart is desperately wicked and who can know it. And Julie uh, confessed right then and there. Joyce put her finger on the word wicked. And Julie started bawling. 
She said, I came to Calvary. I wanted Bill Lutz's job. I wanted to be the worship leader. I wanted Bill gone so I could be the worship leader of Calvary Baptist Church. And she confessed that. And Joyce said, see that? Our hearts, selfishness, wanting self-glory. And Julie repented of that. The pathway to belief is when you finally get real about your sin and Jesus calls it out and says, that's sin. And you look at your heart and say, I need a Savior. There's something wrong with me. I need a Savior. That's the path towards belief.